0: Hello, and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The ENDS Report. I'm Sasha Aide, a reporter at ENDS, and today we'll be looking at a big court win for anglers against DEFRA and the Environment Agency, the biodiversity indicator update, which saw bats flying high but protected site conditions slumping, and government plans to tackle the zombie apocalypse in terms of national grid connections. This month I'm filling in for our usual host, James, but don't worry, he'll be back in the deep dive where he chats to plant life expert, Joe Riggle, about biodiversity net gain and the future of rare grassland habitats. So without further ado, let's enter There's the chamber. chamber. For our Big Green News section today, we have N's Features Editor, Tess Colley, and News Editor, Pippa Neal. Starting the week with a bang, Pickering Fishery Association, represented by Fish Legal, won their judicial review case against the government over its plans to restore the Upper Costa Beck in Yorkshire not being up to scratch. Pippa, do you want to walk us through the case?
1: So the judicial review, which was heard in July, was over the River Basin Management Plan's for the Humber District, which these plans are set up by DEFRA and the Environment Agency, and basically underpin specific environmental targets as required by the Water Framework Directive. Um, And these plans were last updated in 2022, but Pickering Fishery Association argued that the plans lacked the legally required measures necessary to restore the Upper Costa Beck. Um, And they kind of pointed to the recurrent sewage spills from sewage treatment works into the river, which the claimants argued numbered as high as 761 sewage spills in a single year. They also argued that the Environment Secretary's approval of this Humber River Basin Management Plan was wrong in law because the document did not comply with Regulations 3 and 12 from the Water Framework Directive, namely on ensuring compliance and on the procedure for setting environmental objectives. Um, the other key ground um, of the argument was that DEFRA and the Environment Agency both failed to carry
0: out a lawful consultation on these plans. That's really interesting. And the judge, I understand, ruled in favour of all of the grounds that Fish Legal had put forward. Yes,
1: that's right. So the judge found for the Angling Club on each of its argued grounds and ruled that the government and the Environment Agency had failed in their mandatory legal duties to review, update and put in place The like required measures to restore rivers and other water bodies under the Water Framework Directive. Um, In the decision document, which we've we've actually seen, um, the judge characterized the Environment Secretary's approach as one of smoke and mirrors, as there was no evidence of how the river basin management plan could reasonably be expected to achieve the environmental objectives. She also described the risk
0: commentary in the plan overview as being entirely generic. Those are some really, really strong words there from mm-hmm. the judge. Um, it's quite a big deal as a case, isn't it, particularly for people in the water policy space?
1: Yeah, so Fish Legal, in their press release kind of announcing this win, um, described it as the most significant decision of its kind in the UK since this duty to produce these river basin management plants was first introduced in 2003. And Andrew Kelton, who is a solicitor for Fish Legal, said that the case gets to the heart of why the government has failed to make progress towards improving the health of rivers and lakes in England. He also said that they hope the ruling will lead to widespread implementation of actual improvements, not only for the Costa Beck but also for every other failing river and lake across the country. Um, And Penelope Gain, who's the head of practice at Fish Legal, also said that um, the result kind of exposes that all of those policies and plans are effectively built on foundations of sand. That was, oh, wow. her, that was words her line. Again. Mm-hmm. And she said that although Fish Legal is celebrating the legal victory, that they will have to go back to court to argue to kind of continue the argument about what's actually going
0: to be done now that they've had this ruling. So it, it turns out this case will have quite widespread implications, or it is possible they could. Um, we also reached out to Defra for a comment on this. Tess, do you have that one?
2: Yeah, they said, fine. Yeah, you, you got us. <laughs> no, I joke, of course. Uh, a deaf spokesperson said, we are carefully considering the outcome of the, this judgment and the next steps. Um, and they added that the government has an ambitious plan for water, which is delivering more investment, stronger regulation and tougher enforcement needed to clean up our waterways. They said this includes reforming river basement management plans and delivering tailored long-term catchment action plans for local groups to improve all water bodies in England. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. It remains to be seen uh, whether the government will go on and actually appeal the decision, but uh, the win certainly been seen as good news for, for anglers and, and everyone campaigning for better river health.
0: Nice. Moving on to a more mixed news story then, in the midst of the chaotic cabinet reshuffle last week, um, which we covered in that episode, the podcast, DEFRA's suite of biodiversity indicators has now been updated. Tess, what are the main headlines from the update? Yeah,
2: so there's there's a few. Tune out now if you, you only want good news on, on this month, well,
0: this week's <laughs> episode. Um, there's a
2: handful of improvements, to be fair, um, across some of the indicators, but Uh, the state of some particularly important ones like unprotected site condition has prompted some concern. So basically, um, on the better side of things, uh, the update shows that there's both a long-term and short-term improvement for bat populations um, and that is also the case for uh, the extent of protected areas at sea. Uh, there are, of course, because this is environmental news, some caveats. Um, the update notes that the long-term increase in those bat populations is likely due in part to the introduction of strict legal protections for bats. That's not a bad thing, but and also a milder climate. So it could be that the changing climate is obviously making making them more successful. When it comes to the extent of protected areas at sea, it's worth noting that protected areas on land have shown little to no change in the short term. And green groups have a lot to say about just how protected those marine sites are, Um, because in many, it's still actually the case that bottom trawling, which is quite a destructive form of uh, fishing, is, is still permitted in them. Uh, so something to bear in mind but so it's on the condition of some of our most protected sites on land that um some green groups you know really have said there's huge concern on those the sites of special scientific interest and european protected habitats in particular um they are the indicators show they are deteriorating both the long and the short term uh and then update to the invasive species pressure indicator also shows deterioration in the long term across terrestrial marine and freshwater invasive species so Not all particularly good, but I will finish. There are a few other kind of shards of light in a section concerning goals uh, around reducing environmental pressures. The measures reported uh, to be improving in both the long and short term are the air pollution impacts on sensitive habitats, specifically the area affected by acidity. That's apparently improving. Um, Yes. And there's also improvements in the combined input of hazardous substances into the, the marine environment percentage of UK fish stocks harvested sustainably and the area of land under higher level or targeted agri-environment schemes Uh, that is listed as an improvement of course you can get into the details and look at just how protected are the sites within those uh, agri-environment schemes but uh, that's a topic for either another day or for listeners to go and check out the ends website (laughs) and see what we've got on there
0: Yes, I think we've also covered the marine triple um, SSSIs that you were talking about there. So if someone's interested in looking into that more, we have all of that on the website. So in terms of the protected sites then and hitting at some of the targets that have been outlined, um, for example, in the biodiversity strategy, how are we doing on those?
2: So in the 2020 biodiversity strategy that you mentioned, this is basically the strategy on which these these indicators are designed to assess. We've had quite a few other strategies and documents come out since, and the government's working on creating new indicators, but the current kind of higher level outcome that was outlined in that first 2020 strategy um, on protected sites was to achieve at least 50% of size in favorable condition while maintaining at least 95% in favorable or recovering condition. But this year's update shows there's been no change in the area of site in favourable conditions since 2016. And in 2023, 38 of site area was in favourable conditions. So that's really uh, not great. The area in unfavourable for recovering condition has decreased from 57% in 2016 to 49% uh, this year, the report said. So this, the, our protected sites really
0: are in a parlous condition. That's not good. I mean, at least we've got the bats though. Bats are doing well. <laughs> we've got all right. the bats. Yeah. Um Pippa, do we have any indication of of what some campaigners thought about this update so far? So, the Wildlife and Countryside Link did
1: rightly kind of, you know, welcome the fact that there are some improvements to bats, as you say, but they said that the measures that matter the most and that show the true state of nature remain a huge concern. Um, it is also quite interesting to note here that last year, DEFRA didn't publish a full update on all of its indicators. And this was a story, um, that ends broke at the time and was quite widely reported. Um, but this year, I think the news that they'd kind of updated the data on all of its indicators kind of was swept under the rug a little bit, I think, because as you, as you said, Tosha, it kind of came amongst all of the cabinet reshuffle. But yeah, it's a very kind of sorry story about just how kind of bad our nature is looking in England and just how kind of worrying some of the
0: protected sites are moving on to our third story of the week which is hopefully a little bit less depressing um the energy regulator Ofgem has announced new powers to allow zombie energy infrastructure projects to be removed from the queue for connections to the national grid um Pippa can you tell me what this is all about so currently developers
1: enter a connection contract with the National Grid Electricity System Operator Limited. That is a long title, <laughs> um, also a, a long acronym, N-G-E-S-O. I'm not sure that's any easier to say. But basically when they um enter into this contract, they kind of, this is what they do when they want to connect their scheme to the national grid. And they are then placed in a queue based on the date of the acceptance of their connection offer. However, according to Ofgem, in practice, this means that developers that contract earliest will be prioritised for the use of the available capacity over developers that contract later. And this means that factors such as an individual project's status, i.e. its kind of readiness to actually connect to the grid or its viability are not actually considered when allocating capacity to those in the queue. Um, and this ultimately means, according to Offgem, that viable projects are facing inefficient delays and are being hindered from progressing in a timely way, particularly in the case that those are behind kind of slow or stalled projects, like they're just kind of waiting in these, these long queue,
0: becoming these zombie projects. So that would be where they, they get that name from. So in theory, something that is sort of ready to join onto the grid and start providing energy tomorrow would actually be behind something that's already got its connection but hasn't been able to produce energy yet is that sort of yeah exactly and that's purely
1: just because the kind of the 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 cue is based on who applies earliest rather than who is like ready the quickest
0: and Tess, do we know what these new powers that off gem is sort of planning on giving out to tackle this issue is?
2: Yes. So Ofgem has said that new queue management milestones will be implemented uh, by the National Grid Electricity System Operator on the 27th of November. Um, and they will apply to both existing and future grid connection agreements. Uh, and they said this will terminate stalled projects that are blocking the queue for high voltage transmission lines. It means that ready to go generation and storage to enable net zero can be fast tracked. The guidance on this is due to be coming soon with the first terminations likely to happen as early as 2024. Um, So, yeah, one to watch out for.
0: Nice. And Pippa, what has the um, National Grid ESO said about this? Uh, Its chief engineer
1: and head of networks, Julian Leslie, said that they warmly welcomed these new rules approved by Ofgem um, and said that this is a milestone moment in the ESO's efforts to lead the transformation of grid connections process. They said it will make the grid fit for purpose
0: for a modern network that is rapidly evolving and decarbonising. So it all sounds very futuristic, and you heard it here first. gem Terminators are tackling zombies now. On that note, it's time for our moment of the week, where we will talk about our highlights and lowlights from the past seven days. So what have we got today? He wants to start. Do we
2: do low lights as well now? Lights. I, I only prepared highlight <laughs> <Yeah>. a highlight. <role? laughs>
0: okay, scratch the low lights. We're just coming in strong with some positive news yeah. for you today. Yes,
2: please. Uh, well, I'm happy to go first because um, I am delighted with mine. Uh, a Yorkshire farm has sparked a wellness trend with cow cuddling sessions. Cow cuddling? Cow cuddling. So if you go to Dumble Farm, there you will find cow hugging being offered as a wellness experience, two hour sessions are being snapped up, uh, has reported ITV from herds of huggers across the country. So apparently the, the farm that's running this, this experience, they were forced to sell off much of its dairy herd last year after lots of floods saturated their fields. Um, and they've been there for 50 years and it was all a very hard decision, but they they find a way to make the farm viable. They came to to cow hugging as as their new venture. And yes, apparently proving... A hit. Uh, The way, apparently, to get the cow to just sort of sit there and be cuddled is one, pick one, which is quite nice in the first place, Mm -hmm. uh, and two, to feed it a decent meal two hours before the cuddling experience. This article says, when they're full, the cows slowly digest their meal and then take a lie down, providing the optimum opportunity for a cuddle. So... (laughs) There you go. Wow. I think
1: that could be the next ends trip away. <laughs> yeah, I'd love that. <laughs> it's a way day.
2: Yeah,
1: it's <laughs> like when
0: they bring like puppies into universities and stuff, maybe they should start doing that with cows. That could yeah. <laughs> cows into yeah. offices. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, bearing in mind the cows agree to that, of course. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what about you, Pippa? I saw some very cute pictures this week from the National Trust of some new seal pups that have been born at the Blakeney National Nature Reserve on the North Norfolk coast, which is actually cared for by the National Trust. Um, And it was quite a positive story because they said the colony has grown dramatically in recent years and is actually one of the largest in England. And the latest estimates show that there could be around 4,500 pups born every year. So that's some quite quite nice news.
0: That's a lot of seals. I think I remember seeing that press release and I really liked one line from it, which was um, one of the rangers called Duncan said, over the coming months, that point will be carpeted in grey seals, (laughs) which I think sounds lovely.
1: Yeah, nice image.
0: So before we move on to the deep dive, we also have some details on the speakers for ENDS Biodiversity Net Game webinar, which is going to take place next month on the 13th of December. Tess, I don't want to ruin the surprise. You tell him. Yes, so
2: uh for anyone who's been uh, listening intently, you might already know that we've got a biodiversity net gain webinar uh, that ends going to be hosting live on the thirteenth of December. Looking at everything, uh, environmental professionals might need to know about the new mechanism coming in. Um, and the Nick White, who's the principal advisor for biodiversity net gain, is going to be uh, speaking speaking at that on that panel. Uh, he will be joined by Jessica Lewis from the group head of sustainable places, uh, with the Barker Group, which is a developer who's been doing um, doing a fair bit in the biodiversity net gain space for a while and um, more speakers are to be announced so stay tuned and and stay listening to find out more but in the meantime go and sign up
0: on our website endreport.com that may be it for our big green news section but you want to stay tuned for the deep dive particularly if you're interested in grasslands and biodiversity net gain N's producer, James Ajpong Parsons speaks to Joe Riggle, a grasslands advocacy officer from the charity Plant Life, about this vital resource and also why it's important we recognise what we have to lose.
3: First off, Joe why should I care about grasslands?
4: <laughs> I love this question. Um, so the term grassland can be quite opaque and actually even environmental policy circles, it can be a bit misunderstood. And lots of people just think of a grassy area such as a road verge, a local park, but actually it encompasses a huge range of beautiful, incredible places. So you, or listeners, might want to imagine the hay meadows of the Yorkshire Dales, uh, the chalk of Salisbury Plain, or even in Scotland, the gorgeous coastal Macca, grassland. Um, But grasslands are actually massively undervalued as habitats. Um, I'm sure we'll talk later, but they're carbon stores, they're spaces for wildlife, um, they produce food as well, and they provide a whole host of ecosystem services. And actually, they're one of Great Britain's rarest habitats.
3: But, and you alluded to it there, not all grasslands are created equally, are they? And I think there's, certainly for me, when I was first looking into this, there's a lot of confusion around terminology Can you sort of give us the layman's guide to to grasslands and the different sorts that, you know, we should know about?
4: Definitely. I think first, let's start in agricultural terms, because when most people picture a grassland, they're probably picturing a vivid, probably monoculture field in the countryside. And so in agricultural policy terms, you can talk about improved grassland. Now, this is often intensively managed, and that means it fertilized, maybe plowed, regularly reseeded, and it is often monoculture. And so, if you're thinking about you know, what makes sense for wildlife, quite species poor and is not really valuable for wildlife.
3: And then, you, which seems a little bit um, counterintuitive to me because it's like it's improved, but it's worse for wildlife.
4: Yes. Yeah, so improved is talking really about the productivity. So you know, farmers are wanting, or many farmers or some farmers are wanting grasslands that um, is really good fodder and food for livestock and they can produce hay and uh, silage from it mm. and so that's what it's talking about it's kind of agriculture improved improving it for agricultural purposes by applying fertilizer etc okay. um but actually the more and I'm going to use another term here, semi-natural or unimproved grassland, that is much better for wildlife. And you can, in fact, um, have incredibly happy livestock eating on uh, the diversity of species in that type of grassland. And that means it's low input. And the inputs I'm talking about are things like fertilizer. So the kind of semi-natural grassland doesn't need all that fertilizer. You need to reduce or stop putting fertilizer on the grassland. Um, It's not being plowed. It's not being reseeded. And there's a much, greater diversity or species richness um, of different plants and also fungi as well can grow there Mm. Um, and I think what is fantastic and potentially underappreciated, is if you think of the Venn diagram of good for climate, good for wildlife, food production and people, grasslands sit there in the middle of this Venn diagram because farmers can absolutely um, graze their livestock and produce hay and earn an income um, from their species-rich grassland.
3: That's so interesting, isn't it? Because actually this idea that we should let nature be at S- semi-natural grasslands you need the farmer you need the land manager to to manage you know manage it to create this biodiversity rich space so it's kind of like people and nature together creating something really special
4: exactly and in fact it's a relationship um that's been around for thousands of years the history of grassland has been interwoven with our history ever since agricultural practices started taking off thousands of years ago um and so it's really part of especially the uk and europe when we talk about semi-natural grassland which has some form of human intervention because in other countries um there are probably more natural large herbivores like bison grazing and doing the job of the human you know cutting or the livestock chewing um So yeah, in in the UK, we talk a lot about semi-natural grassland. And I realised I mentioned another term, species-rich grassland. Um, And you can describe this almost as the multicoloured crown jewels of the grassland spectrum. This is grassland, which is the most floristically diverse. There's loads and loads of different types of wildflowers and plants and fungi. Um, But also this is the grassland that is rarest and most threatened. Um, And I can give you some figures as well if you want now
3: or later. Please hit me with them. What's the top stat? The
4: top stat. <laughs> well, we've talked about the different categories. Um, in the UK, uh, total land cover for grassland is forty percent of UK land, which is huge. Forty percent of our That's land. Enormous. Um, however, a huge chunk of that, so thirty percent of land, is that improved, you know, intensely managed grassland. really vivid, uh, overfertilized fields. Ten percent of land is semi-natural, so the better um, kind of low-input managed grassland. And in fact, estimates vary, but we think that there's roughly less than one percent of species-rich grassland left, or oh, it covers one percent of land um, in the UK. So it's really rare, and in fact, it's one of our rarest
3: habitats. You've sold it to me, but is it a hard sell for the public policymakers? Like woodland creation, I, I, I think it's an easier to me sell. like I kind of get it. you know, I can understand the merits of, albeit some in some quarters controversial, tree planting and natural regeneration there. Is it harder to sell grasslands to the wider audience?
4: Yes, and that is partly my job. Um, but just to say on tree planting, it's interesting you bring that up because that is something that is very much in public and policymakers and government's consciousness uh, consciousness at the moment. Um, and we definitely are not opposed to tree planting. It's brilliant. It's needed. But it's the kind of adage that it needs to be the right tree, right place. And I think partly we we species rich grassland. Um, suffers slightly is because you just can't see the carbon storage and all the biomass air and it's a much more subtle almost habitat when you compare it to majestic trees or woodlands and so physically a lot of the exciting stuff for carbon um, and part of the ecosystem is underground beneath the soil where we just can't see it. Um, and so what we're trying to do in plant life is really shine the light on the amazing array of benefits that grasslands can deliver and provide for wildlife and humans and also climate as well. Um, and I think with trees and also with peatland as, as well, um, it, it's been really been recognized recently that they are nature-based solutions to climate change. They can be fantastic carbon sores and a way to sequester carbon. And what's very little known is that grasslands, species-rich grasslands, um, are also fantastic carbon stores, but these are undervalued. And so there's real uh, links between the species richness in the grasslands. So you have lots of different flowers and fungi together. Um, they're all packed together in the ground and they have complex rooting structures and strategies so you can get even more roots kind of in the same space in the soil. And that draws carbon down below ground, stores it safely. Uh, And also species richness is linked to greater mycorrhizal fungi below ground. Ecosystem engineers like earthworms, for example, microbes, all this fabulous living organisms that also help facilitate carbon storage. Um, And so there's been studies and estimates that actually species rich grassland per hectare, can store more carbon below ground than the equivalent improved grassland, to so that intensively managed grassland and also arable land as well. Um, just to give an example, you look at floodplain meadows, which are beautiful uh, meadows in a floodplain, uh, and they have really deep alluvial soil that's incredibly good at storing carbon. And I believe they can store, I think, estimates around 106. Tons of carbon per square meter. And then you look at um agriculturally improved grassland, and I believe that is 67 tons of carbon per square meter. So it's a huge difference. And we really need to recognise the potential of grasslands. On that potential,
3: sort of there is a theme at the moment in Westminster Circles to talk about natural capital when we're talking about an ecosystem services, when we're talking about sort of environmental policy. How do you see grasslands fitting into that cap model, you know, net gain, nutrient neutrality? Where does it fit for you?
4: So it's what I would describe as a virtuous circle of management because you have the livestock which you need to maintain that floristic diversity. As I just described, that your species richness, diversity of plants, that facilitates greater carbon storage but you also have other benefits as well part of that natural capital suite um which are you've got healthier soils and they prevent and that prevents Um, or reduces soil erosion and runoff. It can slow floodwaters as well. Um, So grasslands can provide the whole range of ecosystem services that you talk about for other habitats, um, and they are unique as well. And so when you look at things like biodiversity net gain, which is coming in next January, hopefully, um, grasslands actually, a lot of them do relatively well in the metric that Natural England have developed. Um, and I think because it is recognised that they are valuable habitats, they do provide a great range of ecosystem services.
3: A little bit nerdy for a second. Other neutral grassland types or other neutral grasslands, have you come across this term? Yes. Some ecologists I've read are slightly concerned about this particular designation under the net gain metric. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit about that and why? So
4: biodiversity net gain has a metric which um, ascribes value to different habitats and puts a cost on it. So developers, um, depending on what they want to do, they have to deliver this 10% uplift and they can do that choosing various habitats um, and taking forward various restoration activities and so uh, some ecologists have figured out looking at this group of grasslands uh ong other neutral grasslands um that compared to the other more species rich grasslands you know the really priority ones actually uh you probably get more bang for your buck if you're a developer um making these grasslands and you could describe these other neutral grasslands as a kind of an average Joe grassland. are the types of ones that you see perhaps in a, in a park or maybe on a, on a road verge, if it's not being cared for correctly, they're still valuable for lots of different species and an important habitat, but they're not your really top quality, most species rich grassland. And one of the reasons why it does so well in the metric compared to other grasslands is because it broadly, um, if you're a developer, you need less land to restore or create this other neutral grassland. So if you're you're probably thinking, well, yes, I get more bang for my book doing this. Um, and that's fine as long as there is recognition in BNG guidance that there's lots of different types of grassland, even within the neutral grassland. Um, so it's not just a case of, oh, I'll um, you know, bung some wildflower seeds in and, and everything will be fine. I'll create this grassland. It actually does take quite a lot of effort and consideration. Um, so I think that's something that we would advocate for great we don't want different grasslands to lose out Um, and it's certainly an important habitat for lots of species but it needs to be done correctly and there needs to be enforcement as well um, of the management of that bng site over the years
3: right and i know plant life's been doing some work on valuing uh, semi-natural grasslands and rewards for farmers and landowners can you just tell us a bit about your work there
4: Absolutely. And we've we work with some farmers who are just fantastic. Um, they manage some incredible species-rich grasslands. They're really proud of the work that they do. And I think it's really important to recognize all the pressures that farmers are facing from loads of different angles. Um and so We think that farmers should be rewarded um, their incredible work that they put into their their meadows, their pastures, that should be reflected in the agri-environment schemes that are being developed um, in England, Scotland, and Wales. And Just looking at England for now, um, you've got the Sustainable Farming Incentive that's come out. And they have different payment rates for the different options. And I think it's really worrying, actually, um, that when you look at the payment rates for the low input to the species-rich grassland, the management of that are really, really low in comparison to some of the other um, options, such as for arable land, tree planting. And so when you're a farmer who's been managing their species-rich grassland, they've been doing the right thing, they've been changing their business model potentially, you look at those payments, you're thinking about your business in the future and how the finances will stack up it, you know, risk, creating a perverse incentive where the farmer says, well, I'm just going to have to switch to other options. I'm going to have to plow up my grassland or reseed it. Um, There's temporary grasslands called herbal lays, which are great in some instances, potentially as part of a kind of arable system where you're rotating it, but you get way more money for this temporary grassland. And so you kind of think, well, farmers, they're not being rewarded for the work that they're doing for these permanent species-rich grasslands. And that's a real worry for us. And of course, we've got the countryside stewardship, the other you know, uh, arm of the environmental lands management scheme. It's a plus
3: now, isn't there? Yeah, Countryside there's a plus. a plus. I know,
4: I know. It's hard to keep up, isn't it? Uh, but the payment rates, the new payment rates should be being announced soon. And so I think we're we're also keeping an eye on that as well to make sure that well, you know, farmers are being properly incentivized and their work rewarded.
3: And is it then the case that you see that reward being matched up against our commitments nationally and internationally for some of our nature and climate targets? Like, How does a farmer in Norfolk creating a semi-natural grassland match up with these big targets, these climate targets?
4: Yeah, of course. Um, Well, that's the public good uh, benefit, isn't it? That's supposed to be embedded into these payments. And I think that's with grasslands, the kind of public good potential, as we've spoken about, is being undervalued. Um, Just to touch on the carbon again and the carbon story, uh, actually in lots of common carbon accounting methodologies, carbon stored in grassland soils is underestimated because it's only measured to 15 centimetres soil depth. Uh, Now, because in grasslands, 60% of the carbon is stored uh, between 30 and 100. If you're measuring to 15 centimetres depths, you're missing a huge chunk of the carbon potentially. And also uh, other habitats like peatland and woodland, they are often measured to about 100 centimetres soil depths when you're measuring the carbon. So again, it's just another example of grasslands being overlooked and undervalued. But in terms of government targets, when you think about the Environment Improvement Plan, um. Actually, the government say that to deliver the target uh, to create create and restore 500,000 uh, hectares of wildlife-rich habitat, um, they rely on ELM Environmental Land Management Scheme so much to actually deliver that. And one of our concerns for grassland, they're just the the kind of the poor cousin of all the habitats. And because there's no breakdown per habitat as part of that 500,000 figure and commitment, there's the risk that farmers are actually not going to be choosing the species-rich grassland uh, options in Elm. They're not going to be uh, really restoring uh, enough species-rich grasslands to meet those targets that government have set. And there's the international uh, target as well, 30 by 30. Um,
3: to protect 30% of land and sea by 2030.
4: Exactly. Um, and so we need the grasslands that exist all across the country to be appropriately managed uh, to make up that target and commitment.
3: So what do you need then? Sort of a master plan or is that is that where you're going with it or...?
4: Exactly. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it a master plan, uh, although I like it actually. Um, But what what Plant Life and 23 other organisations in the environmental charity sector and also farming organisations as well are calling for is a grassland action plan. Um, for England and also a similar strategic approach in Scotland and Wales. And the idea is that there needs to be this coherent strategic approach taken by government for grasslands because it's this untapped national asset, um, 40% of UK land cover and also England's land cover roughly as well. And so it's just has this huge potential for natural capital to meet target and government are just forgetting about it seemingly um, and just to give you a couple of examples of where grasslands are just being almost lost by omission. there's the grassland gap in policies i like to talk about um the irreplaceable habitat list has just well an interim version has just been published um and it's going to be consulted on late in 2024. Um, and this list is supposed to provide developers with, um, it's supposed to guide a development away from really rare and important habitats that can't be meaningfully recreated um, within a meaningful time frame. Of course, no grasslands
3: uh, on ah. this list, which is such a shame. Um, but ancient, ancient woodland is, it, I know that's on the list.
4: Yes. And so these, you know, I think fen habitats are on this list. There's there's quite a range of habitats, but there's no uh, grassland priority habitat there, which is a real missed opportunity and wrong because actually you can't meaningfully really restore or recreate proper high quality priority species rich uh, grassland within a meaningful time frame it can take you know hundreds of years centuries and, um,
3: so, and some of those sorry i I'm wanting to say at all interview like some of my favorite things to see are sort of the wax cat fungi which are such a. they take such a long time to establish um on these sort of semi-natural grasslands and i don't know exactly it's just not there otherwise i guess
4: exactly yeah well, I'm, I'm really pleased you mentioned wax cat fungi actually because they are gorgeous um, and definitely encourage listeners um, in autumn to get out and try and spot them. They're usually colourful, poking out um, quite short grasslands. Um, And in fact, we have an app that you can use called Waxcap Watch, where you can record your Waxcap grassland spots. Um, But that's also really, a really important point that um, you might not have a species rich, floristically diverse grassland, but you can have a grassland that's really rich in fungi. Mm. um, But we just don't know enough about these, you know, fungi grasslands and also their interactions between plants and fungi.
3: Right. And then is that because there is sort of a disconnect between the public and, you know, access to nature or do people not care? What are the challenges, I guess, for, you know, defending plants and fungi or trying to reestablish some of these sort of, special grasslands
4: i think it's not necessarily a case of people not caring it might be a case of people not knowing and one of the reasons i say that i, I i'm pretty heartened that people do care is plant life's uh, annual no mo may campaign where no we, mo may. i know oh it's it's spread wonderfully around the world in fact um we started it about five years ago it's basically a way of helping people that reimagine their lawns or local grassland green spaces um, and not uh, cutting during the month of May going on into June. Um, and seeing what what plants and flowers might grow there. Um, But we've had a fantastic response this year. I think there was something like over 5,700 registrations, 118 postcodes in the UK taking part. And so to me, that demonstrates that people really do care. Um, They want action for their local patch. It's just a case of helping them understand um, this one of my colleagues uses the term "flavors" of different grasslands. You know, the different, the different grassy flavors, um, and what are the benefits? Um, and also to encourage them to get out and enjoy the beauty. Um, and we've got some work on areas such as road verges and grassland green spaces to make them more diverse, um, which could help the government in meeting its commitment again in the environmental improvement plan to make sure that everyone was in, is in within walking distance. Um, I think it's 15 minutes walking distance, isn't it, of um, green and blue space within that area. So definitely wildflower rich road verges and parks, that, that's part of the picture.
3: I like it. And that sounds lovely. There, That is though against a backdrop of quite worrying figures in terms of the species richness of our plants being lost in this country. So, I mean, you could pick the Q state of world's plants and fungi report, um, the plant atlas 2020, uh, I noted, I think the headlines at the time when the BSBI published that less than half of the 3,500 odd plant species recorded are native to Britain. So, I mean, is that a concern for you in plant life or should we take heart in that? I don't know. What do you think?
4: (laughs) Oh, it's been, um, there's been a plethora of, of quite worrying reports recently, haven't there? Um, so just to take the, the state of nature report, which has been kind of led and compiled by the RSPB and okay, published this year.
3: One which is very worrying. Oh,
4: yes. <laughs> yes, sorry. Pet I just, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> just to complete the set, um. And that, to take a plant and fungi perspective, that found that over a quarter of UK fungi and lichen are at risk of extinction. Um, And there's also been a, a decline in distribution of well over half of Flowering, or to use a technical term, vascular plant species. Uh, vascular just refers to the kind of internal tissue and structure of a plant, if such as a daisy. The internal um, plumbing. Yeah, the internal plumbing. It. Perfect. Yeah, that's the best description. Um, so yeah, well over half um, declined distribution of of, kind of vascular plants, mosses, and liverworts. So it paints a a worrying picture of our plants and fungi species. Um, And then that's in a way compounded by Q's um, State of the World Plants and Fungi Report. Um, Nearly half of the world's plants are potentially at risk of extinction. And I think the kind of fascinating and again worrying thing is that's just the species we know about. Mm. Um, Species that are yet to be discovered, they're even more likely to be at risk of extinction. And the kind of a a line that really captured my attention from that report is on fungi. These are the next frontiers in biodiversity science, um, which is incredibly exciting. And I suppose just to come back to the fungi conversation we're having, um, there's also been a new report or a new study released this year um, about fungi as carbon pools and their potential for carbon. It was authored by... um, uh Merlin Sheldrake, oh, who wrote, wrote and held alive life. exactly. So he was one of the authors. Interesting. Yeah. And it found that um because of the kind of relationship between um plants and fungi and plants giving fungi carbon-rich food. I think what was the figure used? It was something like fungi could annually receive from plants 13 billion tons of um, carbon dioxide equivalents per year, which wow. is a huge amount. And so we, and should... we don't
3: even talk about that. Like exactly. you've you got sort of the fauna, the flora and fungi is just this unknown quantity, right? Even exactly. we know it sort of sustains life in so many ways. Exactly. Yeah. So are you hopeful? I, I don't know. Is that <laughs> is that a stupid question? Yes.
4: No, it's not a stupid question, but I'm hopeful because I am part of an organisation like Plant Life and it are... Ah, uh, raison d'etre is around plants and fungi and we work in partnership with lots of other environmental organizations and also mps who you know, we have species champions such as caroline lucas
3: mm.
4: you, who obviously really care about plants and fungi the building blocks of life and so i think because there is such recognition now of the importance of natural capital of valuing not just valuing habitats and species because they are inherently valuable. Of course they are. I would not be doing this job if I didn't think that. But you're also thinking about, well, because they support our life systems and us, um, what are we getting from these habitats and these species? How do we depend on them? We depend on them for medicine, for food, for the clothes that we wear. We are so linked with with plants and fungi, and therefore we need to um very quickly and and uh urgently start thinking about what um conservation actions do they need from us, and what can we put in place and so you can see that in um policies and targets around the natural environment more general generally, but we're just still the voice of wild plants and fungi, making sure that they are way more integrated into policymaking and consciousness, doing things like a wax cap watch um, app with the general public to inspire them, um, get them thinking about these uh, charismatic, beautiful species um, and kind of, I mean, I'm sure people have quoted this on this podcast before, but there's the quote about, what people notice and understand and see they care about and then they take action. So that's what gives me hope and um, plant life and other passionate people. They are um, taking people along with them on that, on that journey of, of interest, understanding, caring action.
3: So before we close then you have now complete control and power of Westminster, the four nations, you're the Grassland saw, whatever name you want to give yourself. What would you do if you were given those emergency powers? What would you do in your first six months in office? Whatever you want. Whatever budget you 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 desire. Ooh,
4: okay. I would I mean, firstly, I would um agree to develop a grassland action plan for all the
3: nations. Be- I like it about it. it. Was it gap for a reason? It's, yeah,
4: the grassland gap. Exactly. The gap. There's yeah. a gap
3: between policy and nature. In action.
4: Exactly. I like that. Um, so would, I'd really capitalise on that acronym. Um, <laughs> I would also actually um, make sure that to um, turn the strategy into action, that there is a team specific to grasslands in DEFRA, because as far as we're aware, there's no DEFRA team working or person working on grassland specifically. There's whole hosts of woodland and peatland people, but no one thinking about grasslands. So I'd really make sure that there was this, this grassland lens um, through a grassland action plan. But then I'd also <laughs> commission more TV series, for example, and, and more podcasts and more content around grasslands, like Wild Isles, mm. because there was a grassland episode in Wild Isles, but I'd make sure that there were some plant-specific stories in there because you saw species such as hares, bees, but no plant stories. So I'd try and embed grassland plants and fungi in wider literature and culture because I think that's also what really motivates us when you think about the folklore out there. There's such amazing botanical folklore. Mm, I um love that. it's part of our history so i think it's a case of making people recognize what they have what they're going to lose and
0: why they should care
3: joe thank you so much
0: so that rounds up the 67th episode of the eco chamber podcast thank you to tess pippa james and joe If you've enjoyed listening, please do share the podcast with a friend. You can get all the details about the topics we've covered at endsreport.com, where we report news and key insights on the environmental policy space. We're also on Twitter and LinkedIn, so do feel free to let us know what you think using the ecochamber hashtag. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.